0: Good morning, gang. Ray here. Um, I'm with Jamie. You know Jamie. What's up? But what you didn't know is that he's a certified hypnotherapist. So now he's Jamie CHT. And today I want to talk to him about hypnotism and um, what it is and how he got into it.
1: What is it? Hip- hypnotherapy? Oh, well, hypnosis on the difference between hypnotherapy and hypnosis. Oh, okay. Well, hypnotherapy is a form of therapy where we use hypnosis to help people change their lives for the better. And most people who have mental disorders, which are neuroses and psychoses, or psychosis or neurosis, that are pathological in origin go to see medical professionals such as, like, psychiatrists and people like that, but that only makes up about 30% of the population. The other 70% of people have what they call things that they want to fix, which are called the little things. The little things are getting over phobias or increasing confidence or quitting smoking or drug habits and things like that. And, um, like, let's say, for example, that you got a promotion at work, And that job requires you to do some public speaking. But you have a fear of public speaking, which is really common. And the fear of public speaking is actually higher than the fear of death. And a lot of people have trouble with it. So someone like that would come go to a hypnotherapist to help them change the way that they perform when they're giving a public speech. But hypnosis itself is commonly misrepresented in the media, especially by that movie... Get um, get Out, that movie Get Out. Oh, right. I haven't seen it myself, but I've heard about it. And a lot of people think hypnosis is the guy with the, the locket that puts you into a trance, and then now he has control over your mind. That's totally different. That is uh, stage hypnosis, and that does work. It's also called shock hypnosis. Um, shock hypnosis was used during the war... When soldiers would get injured and they need to help soldiers deal with pain management, they have to get them into a hypnotic trance as quick as possible. And that, in that case, they would use shock hypnosis. But most people, aside from stage hypnosis for entertainment, don't use shock hypnosis. Hypnosis is a focused state of awareness just before sleep, where your brain waves are at a low level. And you're not fully unconsciously asleep yet, but you're on the way there. So the myth that not everybody can be hypnotized is exactly that. It's a myth. Everybody goes through different states of of hypnosis every day. And I'll give you three examples from the environment. This is what we consider environmental hypnosis. One is driving. If you've ever been driving home and you miss an exit or something like that, that's a form of hypnosis. If you've ever driven home and you, you suddenly just arrive and you didn't even think about all the different turns and, and things you had to do to get home, you just just happened automatically, that is hypnosis. Another form is uh, movie watching. When you watch a movie, there's no way you can um, enjoy the movie experience without being in a state of hypnosis. So, like, when you walk into a theater, before the movie starts, you're aware of all the sounds in the theater going on. There's people having conversations next to you. There's someone might even be kind of annoying. And then, as soon as the movie starts, you forget about those surroundings most of the time. And you get into the movie. You know that everybody is an actor. You know that it's a work of fiction. And it's not real. People get shot. They're not really getting shot. So... If you were to go watch a movie and you just watch it like, oh, they're just actors, they're acting as a bunch of garbage, then you wouldn't enjoy the movie experience. So film is hypnosis, straight up. Film is hypnosis, and um, Stanley Kubrick was highly aware of that, and that's why his films are more hypnotic to watch than a lot of the other directors out there. Um, So those are two forms of environmental hypnosis. And then the third form of environmental hypnosis is right before you go to sleep there's no way that you could go to sleep without passing through the hypnotic state and um the point of hypnosis and why it's a powerful state is it's a state of hyper suggestibility so whatever messages or suggestions that was going to be like my next
0: Mm -hmm. series of questioning but keep going Oh, it's sure. It's like suggestibility.
1: Okay, um, well, yes. When you are in a state of hypnosis, you're in a state of hypersuggestibility, suggestibility which means... But you're conscious, right? You are absolutely conscious.
0: When you're watching a movie, you're totally conscious. You know if the phone rings, boom, you can get it.
1: Yes. You're absolutely 100% conscious, and you also cannot violate your own moral code. So if someone has put you into a hypnotic state... And then they say, "Take me to a bank and withdraw everything from your checking your savings account and give me all the money they're not going to do it you're not you're not out of control you're actually more in control, but you're just more hyper suggestible doesn't mean that people can control your mind though that's a totally different thing that's brainwashing, and we don't even know if that that's actually possible i mean." There's a lot of talk about um, conspiracy and stuff. Maybe it is, but um, that's not what hypnosis is.
0: Okay. So as a practitioner, you're here to help people go into their sub- subconscious mind and tinker with things. See, that's the part where it makes me a little bit anxious, right? Because if the person you're, if you don't have trust with the person, if you don't have um, a good vibe from the person. The idea of them messing around in your brain is a little bit funny.
1: Uh, and, uh, that's that's the most important, and that's where like mo- probably most of the skepticism is about it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, that is actually the most important hurdle to get over as a hypnotherapist because it actually the hypnosis session actually will not work if. The client doesn't trust the hypnotherapist, so sometimes it actually takes a few tries. A client will have to test out a few different hypnotherapists to see which one they have the most rapport with and who they trust the most because that's the only way that the session is going to work. If they're fighting you the whole time, it's, it's really difficult to get them to relax into the hypnotic state and you won't get very far with them. So trust is the most important element of a hypnotic session. And you said something about the subconscious mind. Well, I, well I was going to ask how many levels of how
0: many levels of deep, I guess, deepness are there? Because you're talking about being hypnotized while you're driving, being hypnotized while you're watching a movie, those, those are obviously like level one. I mean, I don't know if they're levels. Is that how you describe them?
1: Well, sort of. We don't actually. We do actually have levels um, there, and we have it on a. Um, we we chart it on a graph. And but the thing is, when it comes to depth, is what you're talking about. When it comes to depth, you don't always want to deepen the client too much, depending on what their issue is. If they are trying to disassociate from their body, like for pain management then you want to get them as deep as possible. Right. But if it's something that they're trying to get over, like a phobia, or to quit smoking, you don't want to bring them that deep. Right. Because that will completely disassociate them from the body. And for something like quitting smoking, or trying to get them into a confident state, you still want them to have an association with their body. But it's interesting, um, I should mention because you brought up the subconscious mind. So a lot of people have heard that word before. But a lot of people have different models of it. And a lot of people don't actually know what it is. And the way that the model of the mind works is that you have the earliest part of your brain, which is called the primitive mind. We call that the primitive mind. And it's formed between age 0 and 8, within the primitive mind, you come with a fight-or-flight response. So you haven't learned anything about life, but you have a fight-or-flight response. The fight-or-flight response is your nervous system amping you up to either take on a problem and face it and deal with it. Face a challenge in the environment, like run away from tigers, or to amp you up so you can run away from it. And this, um, this, this is a default mechanism that everybody is born with, and it forms by the age of eight. Next, we have the critical mind. The critical mind is our logic. The critical mind is the part of our our minds that filters information and decides what to keep and what not to keep, that is formed by age 9. Actually, the the critical mind, I made a little error, the critical mind is formed by age 5. And the, I'm sorry, the primitive mind is formed by age 5 and the critical mind is formed by age 8 or 9. So you have the critical mind, and you have the primitive mind. Then you have the subconscious mind, and you have the conscious mind. The subconscious mind makes up 88% of the total mind. And that is where your belief system is. It's basically your belief system and all your habits. Then you have the conscious mind. That's just whatever you're aware of at the moment that's what's responsible for your decision making well it's not a hundred percent responsible because we'll get into that yeah. but you think consciously it appears that that is what's responsible for your decision making but um let's talk about the subconscious though because that's really the most important part of the mind where did you 80 percent of the brain approximately 88 percent so what's the other 12 percent the conscious mind and then I know how I said the primitive mind and I said the critical mind each each of the well the primitive mind is fully at the deepest level of the subconscious and the critical mind is halfway in the subconscious and halfway in the conscious mind oh, interesting. yeah so it's split between those two but yes about 88% of your mind is the subconscious and about 12% is the conscious mind so In a nutshell, your subconscious mind is your story. It's your model of the world. It's your model of the world, or it's your map of reality. And it works on two principles. Imagination and expectation. And this explains why people have so much trouble changing their lives and why people fall back into old habits, because when um, when your mind creates memories, you're storing these memories in the subconscious mind, and then your subconscious has to try to predict the future. So, you actually go looking for those outcomes, and not only that, you expect those outcomes, because that's the story that you have in your subconscious mind. So, it's the same experiment how, like, if you tell someone that wherever you go, look out for the color red. So wherever those people go, they're going to see red. Even if there's not actually a legit hue of red in the room, they're going to see it. They'll invent it in their mind. They'll look at orange and say, no, it's actually red. So that's the way the subconscious mind works. You, you, you form a habit. You learn a habit. And then you put up these filters and blind spots. Yeah, because after you've, you've learned a habit, you now expect that outcome. So smoking, once you've learned how to smoke, and that's the other thing, is that all habits are learned, so they can be unlearned. So smoking, everyone had to, everybody who's a smoker had to learn to smoke. It's not something that you just automatically do, because most people don't enjoy their first cigarette. Right. It's like drinking alcohol, too. Yeah. It has... You throw up or you just feel like shit, and then you... Have, but you eventually train yourself to enjoy it. And you, was, you start to associate it positively because it, maybe you associate it with friends or getting laid or parties. So now you've taught yourself how to have this habit of drinking or smoking. And so if you want to quit, you have to unlearn. But it's also this... um the the um, expectation part is you expect your mind has already made up is already expecting a certain outcome. So to try to use your conscious mind, which is only twelve percent, so that's twelve percent fighting against eighty eight to use your conscious mind to, f- to have a different expectation is really difficult. So that's the way the subconscious mind works. And, um, so what I do with clients is I work with the 88% of their minds, the subconscious, and they get to work with the 12%. Pretty cool. Yeah. So you
0: put them in a suggestive state. Yes. First of all, they have to go there with, like, an intention of something specific, like quitting smoking. Yes, and this Or can they just... Or do you get clients that are just like, just make my life better, everything sucks?
1: No. Because... Because hypnosis today is a science, and it's an art, and it's a lot more sophisticated than it was in the past. First of all, um, hypnosis, if people are curious, like where it comes from, is that, um, I mean, it's it's existed forever. But on record, the first person to make it popular was this guy named Francis Mesmer, um. and this happened in the 1880s. And he he first coined what it was... At that time, this state that he believed that people have within them a magnetic fluid that runs throughout their body. And this can be affected with magnets. And he would use magnets to try to heal people and change their behaviors by manipulating this magnetic fluid. And he called it animal magnetism. Later on, it was changed and um, the term was called mesmerism. So that's where we get the word mesmerized from. Then in the 1840s, by this doctor named James Braid, he was the first to coin the term hyp- hypnosis, which comes from Greek. So um, so hypnosis today, not only is it about a state of being where you're hypersuggestible, but we've also discovered by the work of George Kappas that everybody has different suggestibility types so when you hypnotize someone and you're trying to change their behaviors it's crucial and it's vital that you use the correct language to communicate with their subconscious because people process information differently that's what suggestibility types are and there are four of them there's emotional which is if um I'm going to simplify things here, but like an emotional suggestibility type person is somebody who has to, who infers everything. So they're always, whatever you say to them, they're trying to figure out the meaning behind what you're saying. So I'll give you an example. If, um, if you were to say to, um, an emotional person, um, I love you. And you have like a, a, a no expression or anything like that, they're gonna wonder, what do you mean? They're not gonna just believe you, literally. They're gonna right. wonder what you mean. And um, that is because an emotional suggestibility type person learns to be that way by their primary caregiver between the ages of zero and five. So the primary caregiver is usually the mother. And if your mother, was that type where her verbal communication was incongruent with her verbal communication. You will grow up to be an emotional suggestibility type because you're trying to figure out what people mean when they say it. Now, on the flip side, you have a physical suggestibility type also formed by the mother, the primary caregiver between the ages of 0 and 5. But if your mother had verbal communication and nonverbal communication that was congruent, You turn into a physical suggestibility type. So whatever people say, you just say it literally. You just think it's literal. Like if somebody says, "Oh man, I'm really tired right now," to an emotional, that could mean like, "Well, are you irritated and you're just trying to leave?" Mm. All right, that's what an emotional might think. A physical person will just think you're actually tired. Whatever you say is whatever you mean. Right. So those are the two main suggestibility types. And if you are seventy percent or more. On the scale of an emotional suggestibility type, you become an intellectual type. An intellectual type must understand things in a lot of logic for themselves. They have to understand things in a way that they understand using a lot of logic. They won't just like take things at face value. And they're actually the most challenging to work with when it comes to hypnosis. And um, if you are right in the middle... So you're 50% emotional and you're 50% physical, then you're a somnambulist. A somnambulist person is actually the easiest person to hypnotize. Hmm. Yeah. So those are the suggestibility types. So if you're trying to hypnotize an emotional, you can't, you can't use literal language. You can't, say, you can't say things like, okay, you're beginning to feel relaxed now you're beginning to feel heavy. You can't say those type of things because their minds will not process it in the way that you want. You have to say things like, there's, I have an I have two 50 pound weights and I'm placing them on both of your thighs and I'm pushing down on both of them and I'm pushing as hard as I can. So I'm adding 152 pounds on top of that On top of that, two hundred those those weights. I wonder if I'm emotional because I'm like, ugh. Based (laughs) off of what I know about you, you you are also emotionals. Their response to touch is different. Mm. A lot of emotionals, if you go up and like touch them in public or something, ugh, like, don't fucking touch me. It's not that they don't want you to touch them or they're like angry. It's just like it's that's how they are. Physicals are more okay with that, with touch and, and things like that. So physicals, you can communicate with them more literally. But emotionals, you have to use inference to communicate with them.
0: Do people evolve or if you catch them in a different mind or time in their life, could they be one or the other? Yes,
1: you can switch suggestibility types. You can, at, yeah, that's a good point that you brought up. You can make the change from a, a physical to an emotional at different times in life. It actually happens a lot in relationships because there's another... There's a whole other uh, category of personality types that we call sexual types, and it's also using the same emotional and physical, but um, it has to do with how you deal with rejection in relationships, and that response leads to a whole other list of behaviors and how you behave and feel and function in relationships with not just significant others, but with your family. Um, So, when it comes to sexual types, that, the suggestibility types do change.
0: So, a person, a client, would come to see you because there's something they have, like a fear or a phobia. Mm -hmm. Does it ever go deeper than that? I mean, it sounds like it does. Like, you know, quitting smoking is one thing, Mm -hmm. but, you know, um, the fear of public speaking, for example, is another thing, which is, like, kind of a deeper level. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably even more, like, um, you know,
1: drug addiction, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, and and we have... Or do you just put that all in the same box? No, because in order for us to create and tailor the language to use, to um, tailor the suggestions that we give them we have to get to the root of their issue. Because like, it, it would be great if, if someone came in for like public speaking, if they wanna be better at public speaking. It would be great if we could just say, okay, you're confident. When you, when you get up to the podium, you're so confident. But it's, it doesn't work that way. Because what happens is that we have to first find out what the fuck makes them feel confident. Right. I don't know what makes them feel confident. So only like they a, know that.
0: Do you have like a series of kind of questions and you kind of digging around, digging around, seeing like what comes up?
1: Yes. We first ask for the presenting issue, which is what they believe the problem is, mm-hmm. which isn't always the case most of the time. Probably 90% wrong. Yeah. You it's know. just what they believe could be the case. But it's not necessarily the case. And it's only after we dig deeper and deeper and we ask them. A lot of different questions without filtering their experience through our own, which is one of the biggest challenges. Right. Because we have a tendency, like when you have a friend or something and you go to them for advice and they're giving you advice back, they're filtering all what you're saying through their experience. So they're giving you shitty advice, basically. Right. <laughs> but um but we all do it. We all do it. And um so when we're so that back to the example that I was just giving for like public speaking. So if they're trying to um so we have to ask them like well for you what what would it feel like if you were doing the same speech but you were doing it to your brother and he was the only one in the room could you do it then usually they'll say yes okay so why can you do it in front of your brother but you can't do it in front of all these people and usually they might say something like Well, it's just that I feel safe. I don't, like, my brother's not going to judge me. And even if he does, I don't care. He's my brother. So, I I feel safe. I, I, I feel safe. So, basically, when that person feels safe, they feel confident. So we figure out what would make them feel confident at first, and then we use that language to create a state that they can tap into when they have to go and do a public speech, and there's a lot of different methods that we use besides in well, not be, not only besides, but in tandem with hypnosis. Like we use a lot of NLP. Mm. Also, we do things like we reverse the sen- the body or ego sensations that people experience when they're having an anxiety attack. Mm. We reverse those feelings, and, or, or we mm-hmm, or we anchor a new state. Because you can't actually get rid of, of the way someone feels. You can only create a new state, or you can reverse the old one. But you can't just like make that state disappear. Once it's there, it's there. Right. The more you try to fight against it, the stronger it becomes. So, But creating a new state works, and reversing the, sen- the ego or body sensations also works. Um, so we use all these different strategies to work with, with individuals. Because um, it's like I said, each new client is a blank page. Right. It's, it's going to be um, a discovery for the both of us. And um, each session is tailor-made for them and what works for them. I do want to mention, um, first of all, that hypnosis works um, by an overload of message units. Message units is information that's coming in from the environment and information pouring into your mind from other parts of your mind and your body. So like an example, um, a lot of people will drive to work. People who work early in the morning will actually arrive at work in a hypnotic state. I'll tell you why. Hmm. Because the minute you wake up, the alarm goes off. So now that's sending message units to your body that, oh, I'm tired, I want to sleep a little more, but I have to get up. So you look at the clock, you're oh, shit, I only have half an hour message units are pouring in. Now you got the news on, and, you, you, and you're watching the news, you're learning about what happened last night. You get in the car, you're driving to work, you have to pay attention to all the traffic signals and lights, there's billboards everywhere. You're thinking about... The day at work, uh, what do I have to do? Who do I have to see? All these things are pouring in to your mind, overloading you with message units. And then when you finally get to work, where you can sit down and, okay, I'm here at work, you escape. And hypnosis happens from the escape. So it's a buildup of anxiety And then it's an escape into hypnosis. That's why, too, malls and movie theaters, shopping, they they try to make it so complicated. That's why you wonder, like, why is insurance so fucking complicated? Why is everything so complicated? Well, that's why, because they know that when they overload you, stress you out, make you do mental gymnastics, by the time they give you an opportunity to relax, you're going to take it. And once you take it, you're now in a hypnotic trance, and then every suggestion they make after that, you're hyper-suggestible to. Wow. So it explains how our whole society functions. hmm And I have a theory, and that is because there's a lot of escapism in modern culture. Everybody wants to escape, whether it's through video games or movies or books or drugs or just whatever. People have this urge to want to escape all the time. And I believe that this is by design. I actually do, or maybe not by design, it just inadvertently happened to end up this way, but I do believe it's because we live in a society of overstimulation Mm -hmm. and overload of message units. And a lot of it is by design, though.
0: Yeah, like the internet.
1: Yeah. So, just remember that. And I'm available at the Jamie. You can find me on um, the YouTube channel at the Jamie Files YouTube channel. Watch his channel. And um, feel free to message me if you would like a hypnotic session or you want to know more about hypnosis. Very cool. Um, We didn't talk about how and why you got into it. Oh, I got into it because um, I originally, I've always been um, a lifelong practitioner and student of psychology and human potential. But I didn't want to go the clinical route because when I went through school for psychology, I just did not see any clinical applications that I thought were interesting. I was always a little bit more of a wingnut. And hypnosis at that time did not have as much credit. It's actually, it is a credible and certified uh, form of vocational or unvocational therapy. You could look it up in the book of job titles and um, There's a white paper on it too. You could look this up in um, Occupational titles. There's like a an official book of occupational titles and hypnosis um, is recognized by the American Medical Association as a legit form of therapy to deal with pain management and other types of behavioral modifications, so I got into it mostly because I wanted to help others but I didn't want to do it in the traditional clinical ways. And then when I found out about hypnosis, I I was hooked instantly. And also I have a, a passion and interest in film. So when I knew that hypnosis is such a broader subject than just therapy, and that it deals with film, it has to do with how our minds work. And it has to do with art and how to create art and how to put people into states that... Um, Give them and give them power over their own minds and they're able to optimize their own mind because that's actually um, the end result of learning about hypnosis and getting hypnotized is that you are taught how to optimize your own mind so it puts you in the driver's seat and that's what we've talked a lot about on our on our show
0: on our different YouTubes on our old podcast we're always almost talking about optimizing your individual potential. Exactly,
1: exactly. And so this, this is just lives. like a new certified level to it. Exactly, exactly. And it's also quicker because if you look at the, this is all statistical facts, is um, when you look at how long it takes therapy to fix people with certain behaviors, it could take up to 30 to hundreds of sessions where uh, we cut the time down in hypnosis within like three to five for a lot of cases. So, it's a lot quicker because like, everybody says like, oh, in modern society, we're looking, skateboarder. Everybody's saying like, oh, we're looking for a quick fix. We're looking for a quick fix and my answer to that is, you're damn right I'm looking for a quick fix. I needed that shit yesterday. So, I'm all about that and that's another thing that drew me to hypnotherapy.
0: Very cool, Jamie. Thank you. Doing a great job. Thanks. Thank you. Um, What else do I have to ask for you? Um, where does it fit in with, like, where does self-hypnosis fit in? Oh, like, when I think of NLP, I always consider that like a self-hypnosis thing.
1: Um, well, like, NLP, I didn't know it was part of like a hypno hypnotherapy session. It can be, and there's also individual NLP sessions too. But, um, self-hypnosis is different than hetero-hypnosis. Hetero, not to deal with sex, but hetero, meaning one person is doing it to another. Self-hypnosis is different because you you have to be the guide. So there are certain limitations with self-hypnosis. It's effective, but depending on what your issue is, there's certain limitations because if you aren't focused enough to be your own guide during the hypnosis, then you may need to have someone else hypnotize you you for you. And also, um, if you don't know your suggestibility type you don't know how to use the correct language on yourself either. So you have to first um, find out about what suggestibility type you are, and then um, you would choose... I mean, there's all these different methods, like a countdown, walking downstairs. This is just to get you into the hypnosis. Getting into the hypnosis, you can do it by yourself, which is great, but if you want to actually change yourself using self-hypnosis, then you have to get the right suggestions in there. It's kind of like guided meditation. Right. Or was, that was my next question. Like where does guided where does
0: meditation fit in
1: they're, all this? They're really similar. And some would even argue that they're the same. I think that they're different because in meditation, a lot of them, you're trying to quiet the mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas in hypnosis, you're trying to do the opposite. You're trying to overload your mind with noise so that you escape into hypnosis so that's where I think the big difference is but when it comes to the suggestion part where you're you're listening to the suggestions and just being relaxed a meditative state and a hypnotic state would probably have the same brain waves on an electroencephalograph. graph right because um, there's also biofeedback mechanisms biofeedback machines which allows you to to manipulate your body temperature. Like you've seen like Tibetan monks how you put wet towels on them and they're able to, to heat up their own body temperatures and dry the towels. So they have biofeedback machines now where you can monitor your bodily sensations I just, visually. I just watched a bunch of
0: videos on that guy. I think, well, uh, not a bunch of videos. It's an interview mm-hmm. with that guy, William Hoff. Mm-hmm. The, the guy who swims in the Arctic circle and stuff like that
1: wow and he probably does that without even knowing or maybe he does know his whole thing is like breathing
0: but I think it I think it's a form also of like self self hypnosis totally Like you just totally doesn't feel the cold water he's broken he has like hundreds of um, world records um, from like you know he he did Mount Everest in just like a pair of shorts and flip flops Yeah. And stuff like that whatever that's awesome. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I think that's it. Cool. Well, it was great talking to you, right? <laughs> it's was great. <laughs> it was great talking. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Over. And, um, we'll do it again. It was fun. Maybe yeah. we can put someone in a hypnotic trance next time. We'll do it live. Can we do that? We'll do it live.
1: Is that, like, not ethical? No, it's ethical. It is? Yeah, totally ethical. Okay. We're not, we're not doing anything wrong to them. Like, we're putting them in the driver's seat. You are empowered when you are um, when you go in for a hypnotherapy session. You're the one empowered. You're the one that's doing most of the work. I'm just like a guide, cheerleader, cheerleader. Yeah, exactly. I, they're the ones that are actually doing all the work. They have the most control over their minds. So, like I said, it's not brainwashing. It's not mind control. So I will say most elite athletes
0: have. Um, they're going to call them like some kind of personal coach or something, mm-hmm. but, or motivational coach. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these guys are um, basically hip- hypnotists, hypnotherapists. Yeah, that's what a life, if you. Have- sports, sports, they consider it sports medicine, mm-hmm. or they'll consider it like a personal coach or motivational coach or something like that. But really, what they're doing is a form of hypnosis. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what they're doing, yeah. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. I think that's it, guys. Okay. See you next time.